truth, love, and the good. Here we go. Welcome. I'm David Tan, PhD, and this is the DT PhD podcast. And I'm joined by my guest Henry Chung. Hello. And we are here in Singapore, back in um, the Fusang offices. Yes. And uh, you might have, if you're watching this on video, you recognize this backdrop. Yeah. And uh, it's good to be finally in the same city after so many months <laughs> um, corresponding over over the oceans. It makes life a lot easier with <laughs> just one mic. Yes, that one mic really helps. Um, and one mic and one video. Um, so. I'm David. So my spiel, uh, in case this is the first time you're listening or watching, uh, for over the past 10 years, I've been helping hundreds of thousands of people in over 87 countries attain success, happiness and fulfillment in life and love. And uh, why don't you do a quick intro, Henry? Yes. Well, my name is Henry Chong. I am the CEO of the Fusang Group. Uh, Fusang is an investment management group. Um, we help families and institutions look after their assets and their affairs. Uh, and our latest thing is we're spending a lot of time looking at investing in technology like the blockchain. But I don't think that's what we're here to talk about today. Well, we could, but yeah, that's not <laughs> what we're... So, so the topic we've chosen for today is something I call the vantage point of trust or the vantage of trust. And this is the perspective or the approach of trusting that everything will end up working out better, even if you fail. And that's a pretty aggressive uh, assumption to make. Yeah. Uh, because if... if you take that at face value, then you may wonder why bother trying at all. So, um, so let's let's unpack this. So, I'll put out my theory, and then and then we'll see what Henry thinks. So, uh, I first came across this idea um, in its explicit form in a meditation. So, I've been doing uh, guided meditations lately yeah. on Insight Timer. It's, it's part of our new a new thing. I want to actually run by you <laughs> on uh, on meditation and um, the meditating meditator teacher was named Sarah Blondin. She's excellent. I've recommended her, recommended her to other clients, um, and some of them liked her tracks, some of them didn't, so I don't know. Your, your mileage may vary, your taste may vary, but I like them. And she has one on trust, and, and um, remembering trust, I think is the, the title of that, that track. And she pointed out, she had this phrase, and I'm not able to quote it exactly because I didn't write it down, but it's something like, the tapestry of your life, on the tapestry of your life, there is no stain. Mm -hmm. And it began with thinking about or having you th uh, look back on your life and seeing that the things that you thought were going to end your life, and when you're a child or a teenager, there could be very minor things in the long run that you think are life-destroying events. Like no one invited you to their so-and-so's birthday party or something like that, or the prom and your hair is messed up. Um, and you look back at those things and you realize that uh, they actually worked out for the better. Yeah. And this is a leap of faith for, for, I don't know for how many people, but when I did it for myself, I realized that almost everything in my life that worked out really awesomely, is that an adverb, awesomely, uh, really worked out really, really well, were a result of some big setback or perceived setback or perceived failure. And when you approach your life like that, there's a lot of things that probably if you're an achiever, you're striving for. And in order to, you like, you probably strive on, or, or thrive under pressure. And one way to get yourself moving and get through procrastination is to think big. 
and to lay down deadlines and to add pressure because if you're an achiever and you're older, uh, you're probably, I'm just making sure the, the mute <laughs> thing is on. But, uh, if you're an achiever and you're, uh, you're probably, you're probably in a pretty comfortable position versus where you were 10 years ago. So you could roll back your life 10 years ago and you could live, you'd survive. But so achievers are constantly tricking themselves, and many of them do this unconsciously, to achieve more by adding more pressure. Like I have to make the next promotion or I have to get this, uh, this status or this next thing. And they're artificially heaping on themselves these big audacious goals to in a way motivate themselves because that's what makes them feel alive. Yeah. And if you do that for too long, if you're running on the treadmill too long, you don't take a break, you'll not just burn out, but you might fail. And that failure might be causing you a lot of stress that's not just affecting your health, but also affecting your relationships and uh, your, your parenting relationships, your, your relationship with your kids. And, and your, it's going to affect your work because you can't get into flow if you're too stressed out or if there's too much pressure. You're bottled up. That's not going to help you achieve the best. So um, this is an insight I, I, that I wanted to lay out for Henry. And uh, I have lots of stories and anecdotes I can share of like when I... During that first meditation, I looked back and was like, yeah, man, that was true. Uh, but I wanted to throw it out to you. I mean, I think the first thing I'll say is that, you know, when you say, for example, you know, failure is the way, or, you know, the Stoics, you said this concept, of like the obstacle is the way. And I guess the point is that the way is the way, right? The, that, that, that's the way you got. And, you know, Confucius used to say the way is the way because the way is walked. And you can imagine alternate futures in which something happened a different way. But the point is that in this future, in this moment, right here, it only happened that one way. So, you know, whether that thing turned out good or bad subjectively, right, whether we place that judgment upon it, that was just, that is the timeline you live in, so to speak. And whether or not things turn out well, again, it's just purely up to our perception. But in a sense, they couldn't have turned out any other way. So hmm. you got what you got and that's it. It's up to you to decide whether that, that was a failure that became way or whether it was an obstacle you overcame or whether mm. it was luck or whatever right mm. in a sense the only thing that we can decide looking back is our perception of it right we don't really get to go back and rewrite history mm. um but you know you talk about trust and that just reminded me of this quote by uh, alan watts and he said that and actually the painting by his title and he says um the thing is to trust the water right if you struggle you will drown if you just let go and float right you'll be mm. okay which is true, right? That's exactly what you need to do. And it's only by panicking and struggling that, that you burn so much energy. Mm. Um, it just made me think of that quote. But um, it also made me think of... Um, I, sent you, I, sent you the, sorry, I sent you an email a while ago um, from Ryan Holiday when he writes about how... Um, this author, Aaron Thayer, uh, who has a book called The World is a Narrow Bridge. And he has a line in there where he says that Basically, the most important thing is not to be afraid of the narrow bridge, right? A narrow bridge, walking along a narrow bridge that's one foot wide is no different than walking across a narrow bridge that's, you know, a mile wide. It's no different than walking across the ground. It's the same mm. act of walking. It's only different because it's a narrow bridge or it's, you know, far above ground and we seize up and we panic and we get scared. And I think his point was that life is like a narrow bridge. If you look down, you'll panic. Mm. But actually, if you just sort of keep your eye on the horizon and keep walking, it's fine. Right? There are so many things in life that cause, if you think about them, pain and stress and suffering. And if you, just like when you're about to undertake any project, right? if you seriously think about all the things the project will take, you would never get started. 
Mm. But if you just sort of don't look down, you focus on the end goal, and you just kind of start walking step by step, you'll be fine. Mm. Yeah. And I think that ties right. into what you were saying, where, you know, objectively, there is a lot of pain and suffering in life, but so what, right? You keep your eye on the horizon, you keep walking, and actually life in many cases turns out okay, right. better than okay. Yeah. Especially if you choose that perception, right? Mm. If you believe, for example, that, you know, Tony Robbins has this quote where he says, you know, what if, right? Not, you know, what if you believe that life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you. Mm-hmm. And I believe that beliefs are subjective, right? Mm-hmm. It's up to you to pick. I don't know. I mean, there isn't one belief that's true or not. It's up to you to decide what's true for you, mm-hmm. right? And what, which of those beliefs you pick, right, is, is everything happening for me, right? Are all these failures just me getting lucky, mm-hmm. right? Um, for example, like, if something bad happened to you, what if something worse was ha- could have happened, but the universe was being kind to you, and so that happened instead? Mm-hmm. These are all completely subjective beliefs, right? And the truth is that looking back, there is just one timeline. That's all you've got. Mm-hmm. But... The, the meaning and the, the perspective that you can ascribe to that history, I think, is up to you to decide. Right. Well, yeah, it's, it's up to us to decide because, so I worked out this logic on this. <laughs> so positive delusions are, well, they're positive. There's, there's something in psychology called positive delusions. This is when the, the patient, the subject, is deluded. Maybe they think they're, well, a, grandio, a grandiose delusion is one where they're, uh, hallucinating in a way. So they're, they think maybe they're a secret agent. But because they think they're a secret agent, they think they're super smart, they're very powerful, and they, they maximize their, uh, their gifts or their intellectual abilities, and um, they go for it. And when you think, that when you feel like you're confident, you might feel like you could be a secret agent. And you can pull off all kinds of things where in your more so- sober mind, you, you would have been scared. So there are such things as positive delusions. And in attraction, like um, I studied how to attract women and taught it for for many years. And one of the most uh, advantageous uh, mindsets was uh, if you believed that you were attractive or at least as had as much social value as the person you're talking to. And in fact, it's best to not even think about that, but that you just think that you are of value and and the other person's of value, just something simple like that. But if you were to look at it more objectively, and were to poll people, uh, you might get a score that is low for you, that's lower than the person you're talking to. But in the moment, if you don't think about that, or where you're even going to be even more attractive, if you're positively deluded that you're attractive, you're, she's going to suddenly think, why is he so confident? There must be something else about him that I haven't quite got yet. And because you're so confident, because you're positively deluded, um, you probably are charming, because you're going to say funny things, you'll, make, you'll tease her, and all of this other stuff. So positive delusions... Um, to a certain extent, help. And what to what extent? Because then there's a reality principle, right? Ray Dalio and principles, that's one of the most powerful ones, that you must always pay attention to the reality, especially when you're dealing with money. Um, there's only so much that you can delude uh, the market. <laughs> um, you delude other people, but it's harder to delude numbers. So you need, to, uh, you need to take into account the reality. Now, here's how it all works. So going back to your example of, well, the example that you gave of the Daily Stoic, where you're on a narrow bridge, but it could be one feet high or it could be 100 feet high. And when it's 100 feet high, you freak out. And that's because you think that you're, if you fall, you might die. Whereas if you're one foot high, you could fall and you just get back on. And there are real consequences. And I remember um, when you were saying that, I remember uh, on a nine-hour bike ride in the mountains of Vietnam, in the mountains of Vietnam, how many times have I started 
uh, sentence like that. But in the mountains of Vietnam, when I did not know how to ride a motorcycle, out in no in the middle of nowhere, literally, um, all we were guided by all I was guided because I was separated from the rest of the riders, and the guide's bike was broken down, and he said, "You can't wait. You got to just keep going. Go ahead. We'll meet you at the next town." And I end up coming off the mountain, which is already pretty scary, and I just see a very narrow path, yeah. and the moonlight was so. Um, was so low that I couldn't make out the, the boundaries of this path, but I could hear running water on both sides. So, and I knew I'd pass many bridges on the way here. So I was like, holy shit, this is a really long bridge and I can't see where the damn path ends. And then I looked a little closer and I saw a red dot moving further away from me. I'm like, okay, somebody else made it. So I looked at the red dot and I just followed the red dot. And I remember in driver's ed school, learning how to drive a car, uh, the teacher said, don't look at what you want to avoid because yeah. then you'll hit it. <laughs> so always look where you want to go. Always look where you want to go. And it's hard for beginner riders, drivers, because you're always going to be looking at the thing that you're scared of. Yeah. And don't look near, look far. Right. Look ahead. Look yeah. far ahead. Um, so many great things you can learn from driving. <laughs> Life lessons. So anyway, I looked pretty far. This red dot was, was already pretty far along. And I just followed the path and I could hear the water. So if I attended to that, yeah. I, I probably would have freaked out and maybe just squirreled around a little bit and fallen over. I found out the next day they were rice patties <laughs> that were ir being irrigated, but they were quite high up, right? It still would have been quite uncomfortable. Anyway, so I, I went across and I made it, but a part of me was just, I'm homing in on one little red light and blocking out all other stimuli. And I got across pretty easily, just like as if it were, uh, if it were just flat ground. And it's what it's your brain that freaks you out. It's your yeah. perception. So here's how you can here's how I, I the logic behind navigating the reality principle versus positive delusions. You have to accept. Well, this is you, you have to see. It's easy to accept it once you see that your vantage point is limited, yeah. and your knowledge is limited. If you had infinite knowledge, if you were God, then you should always use the reality principle. Right, if you could look forward in time, if you knew everything, but you don't. You have a very limited vantage point of of, of reality. Because of that, you can't actually ever know all of reality or even all of reality that pertains to your issue. Because of that, actually, you, you get as much reality as you can. But then there are some parts of reality that don't help you. Yeah. And if you hold them in your mind, they will hinder you. So many people think about what if I fail? If I fail, then this horrible thing will happen. And they focus on the horrible thing that will happen and it paralyzes them from taking action. Yeah. So guys looking at a girl that they want to meet, they focus on what if she rejects me? What if uh, people laugh at me? And they focus on the things that like on the side of the road or on, the, on the, the, the sound of the water when you're trying to cross the bridge. Instead of focusing on the little red light that's moving further away from you. And you should just focus on that. And when it comes down to it, you should focus on the thing that will help you get across to the other side yeah. and, and have a very narrow focus on that. And sometimes that light isn't there. So you have to positively delude yourself that, that, that that's there to get you across. And if you're smart, you know, if you had to stop and think about it, that this is a delusion, that the chances of you actually succeeding are much lower than you're tricking yourself into believing. But if you're going to get this done, you have to have that confidence to pull it off. So you have to think it's higher than it is. It's sort of like that little red dot. And so, of course, the little red dot ahead of me in that, in that bridge thing was uh, another writer, right? So you're thinking there's somebody else who's done this before, even if you don't know anyone who has. And, or, or you can think about it fictionally. So I, I used to have fictional role models because I just couldn't find anyone in real life that was like that. Um, or there might have been some approximations, but no one liked that. So why not just take the fictional role model and trick yourself into believing there really was somebody like this? 
and, and strived towards that as a role, as a role model. So the logic actually works because of our, our limited uh, knowledge. We have, you know, the intellectual humility or epistemic humility, which would cause the reality principle to be more limited than it would, um, than, than, than some people might think it would be. And that allows room then for positive delusions. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, I think that's a great, great, great story. I mean, the thing about fear is that it's not just uncomfortable, right? Behavioral psychology and performance science tell us that in certain situations, being afraid or, or overthinking the activity. So if you genuinely are not that good a bike rider, thinking about how you are not a good bike rider isn't going to help you mm. at all. Not just not help you, it will uh, dramatically impact your performance. Again, to your example, if you're focused on how bad a rider you are, you're not focused about where you're going. Mm. And that can be disastrous, especially in situations where you don't have a choice. It's like, okay, well, I'm on a bridge. I got to get across. It's not particularly helpful to me to think about the reality. I just got to focus in on the outcome and achieve it or else. Mm. And I, I think that, that that's a very powerful point. See, I think that beliefs are like tables, right? You need legs to support them. And you can have a belief for a while if no one comes and tries to push it over. But if faced, you know, let's say you have a, a belief that's only a table that only has two legs. If faced suddenly with this strong oppositional force, it'll just fall over. And I think beliefs are the same way. We can believe something about ourselves until faced with some unavoidable reality. And then that belief might collapse. And the only way to make sure that the belief doesn't collapse, the belief is firm, is for it to have legs. And for beliefs, I think those are things like experiences, right? If you have experiences you can point to, that forms like a foundational leg for your belief. So for example, you know, if your belief is, uh, I can ride a motorcycle across a rice paddy bridge, one really strong leg is, and I've done it before, <laughs> can probably do it again, right? Um, and, and, and the more legs you have like that, the stronger your beliefs become. So I think that reality is important, and you do at some point need these legs to support your beliefs, otherwise they won't last. But then the problem is, okay, well, how do I get going, right? How do I get that first experience of having ridden a bike if I don't even believe that I can? And I think that's where it comes in, where you sometimes need a bit of that positive delusion to say, you know what, I'm just going to try. I've never done it before. I think I can, right? And once you do it the first time, you've got one leg, and then you can do it again and again, and the belief gets stronger and stronger. But at some point, you just need to get over that initial threshold and take a leap of faith. And I think it's like that in a lot of things in life where you will, again, we don't understand our reality. You will never have all the information to make a decision. So at some point you say, you know what, like you either go or you don't. And that's it. Yeah. That, <clears throat> so there should be another term besides positive delusion for positive delusions that are informed by reality. Yeah. So the ideal state, well, the state that I'm aiming for is where you realize that the delusion is a delusion, yeah. but you're adopting it consciously because yeah. it will help you towards your goal. Yeah. So knowing that you're 100 feet off the ground is something that's in the back of your mind because you need to be really more focused on the thing you're going to focus on <laughs> and ignoring the things you need to ignore than if you were had a bigger margin of error, yeah. like you're one foot off the ground. And 
So you should never ignore reality. <laughs> That's really important. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, one thing to point out, we had some audio difficulties because I had forgotten, because it's been so long since we've done a Biden, <laughs> like the two of us in the same room doing one, that I had the wrong setting on the microphone. Um, I also hadn't focused the video <laughs> camera. Um, so there, So I because I usually have somebody else videoing this, videoing me. So um, there is a mistake that with the <laughs> trust advantage or the advantage of trust, I'm hoping that somewhere down the line, this will work out even better, um, maybe as a teaching lesson. I don't know. Uh, but another example of a mistake was, and so by the way, the original point wasn't just positive delusions, yeah. because that's actually, that's actually much bigger. And there could some, be some debatable examples of positive delusions. But I was talking about van, the tr advantage of trust, where you give your all, you give it your best shot, and you still fail. Yeah. And instead of just giving up or getting really depressed mm -hmm. or heaping on even more stress, um, you just trust that things will work out. And the older you get, usually, if, especially if you've been uh, an achiever, you can usually look back and, and see that the things that you freaked out about in your early years yeah really weren't that important. And in fact, because you failed, you ended up in these other situations that actually worked out really, really well. Uh, another example that of, of where I'm applying trust in my life yeah. is um, I, I just got into an accident uh, out of complete stupid, sheer stupidity. It was on a Saturday night, um, Saturday morning, and uh, just running um, in my new running shoes and uh, partying with some friends and I stupidly ran because I, I was running with, because I thought I got these great running shoes yeah. and I wanted to, to show them off and I ended up falling flat on my face, breaking my two front teeth. I hit my head twice on the floor. So I whiplashed my neck, which I didn't discover until the, the second day and was completely stiff and still have that stiffness. I can't look all the way to the left yet and uh, for at least three days. I had that stiffness and then um, all like bruising on my chin, all that other stuff. But the worst was the, the fact that I broke my two front teeth and I couldn't get back. I couldn't get insurance to cover it easily until I got back to Singapore because my insurance is based in Singapore. So I had to and I couldn't change my flight because it was booked on miles and the miles availability at that category had no openings <laughs> until my original flight. So I had to wait four more days with broken teeth. Um, couldn't eat besides like congee and soup and you know, so that sucked and I couldn't film I had to cancel two uh, filming shoots and, and we had brought in uh, We had arranged for two uh, Filmographers in that city in that foreign country. So we had to call that off. We ended up just meeting for dinner <laughs> So that sucked and that beat the first for the first two days. I was really angry at myself, which I, I'm still angry at myself but I was also sad and depressed and kind of like, damn, I had to cancel all this and now I'm going to have to pay for this and then hopefully the insurance. But then I was worrying about whether the insurance would cover and all this stuff. And um, I think it might work out, work out, worked out even better. So you might hear a slight lisp because I have temporary caps on right now. Yeah. But um, I think my teeth will look even better because they're new <laughs> artificial teeth. And you will learn not to run. Not, yes, drunk. not to, you know, well, and not to wear running shoes, to be tempted to run because they were really nice running shoes. I got these really nice running shoes with these springy, anyway. Yeah. So um, that's, a, well, these are minor examples, trivial yes. ones, but um, I was coming up uh, today. Our our business is in a transitional point. I'm put, yeah. trying to put out more free content, but then also putting out more uh, courses. And um, the courses are taking a lot of work. They're taking out a lot of time, more time than I had scheduled, and that's preventing me from putting out things like the podcast yeah. as much as I'd wanted. In addition, 
we're trying to meet a new part of our audience, our, um, our market. So the price points are different. The style of delivery is different. And it's not what I'm used to. And because of that, actually, our, um, our, that transition point is always where the scaling will, will have a weakness. Yeah. So we're not able to scale smoothly in a straight line up. It's going to have to dip and then hopefully curve up. And um, the finances are bad enough that I was like freaking out, like, oh, man, because there are a bunch of unexpected expenses that have come up in the past two months. And I was thinking with my wife today um, what our backup plan is, because I'm used to facing adversity. My wife is much younger than me, hasn't gone through as much uh, career adversity. She's gone through other personal adversity, but not like achievement type of adversity. So I've been there and I was like, I was very calm and relatively compared to her, but she was freaking out. So I was like, okay, I'll let me help you like not freak out so much. And let's think of my, our backup plans. Cause I always have a backup plan and you need a backup plan to your backup plan and backup plan to your backup plan to your backup plan. And ultimately we had already come up with a backup plan. The two of us way back, which is to go to jail. Cause if we go to jail. You have three square meals a day. You don't have to worry about paying rent. You, know? <laughs> you have to worry about inmates and other shit, but you know, you don't have to worry about the necessities. Um, and, uh, but anyway, uh, that's like plan Z plan, plan Z. So uh, we came up with, a new, with some backup plans, and they were so enticing, in fact, that she was like, let's just do that. That sounds awesome. So we were very tempted to just quit the whole thing we're doing now, just go for the backup plan. <laughs> and once the backup plan, that's the danger, like when the backup plan becomes so enticing, then that's like, that was the case for me. I'll give you an example of where the vantage point of trust came in. Um, I, I was getting into trouble, my first job in Singapore, my first real job, where it was like a career and salaried, was as a professor. And it was at the National University of Singapore. And at that year, it was the best job in my field in the world. Um, Singapore, Asia really respects its teachers and, and pays them quite well and paid them like, like corporate level. Mm-hmm. So we had an expat package and it was better, like at least 25 to 30% better than any offer in that field that year. So, it was a re- so I was pretty happy. But in the first month, I befriended, uh, out of the many females I befriended, one of them was a reporter and she wanted to do... Uh, an, an article on the work I was doing as a dating coach. And I naively said, yes, that sounds like fun. <laughs> and we did it, ended up on the front cover of the national news, one of the national newspapers. And I had no idea that this would get me, in, me into trouble with the university because I was so naive and I was just like so in my own frame. I had, my positive delusion was so strong. Like, <laughs> I don't give a fuck. I'm going to live how I am. Why, why hide anything? I didn't hide anything ever. And I didn't expect um, that, that the university would not be uh, happy with that. They were getting, it wasn't so much that it was against the rules. It was that they were getting complaints from parents mm. thinking I was a rapist or something. And, and they didn't want to, you know, it's just extra work for them. And I totally sympathize with them. And I'm now much more mature. Um, but at the time, I was freaking out. And then it, I, I kept trying to scale back that part of, the, of my life. But I couldn't because that was just me, you know. And um, I blogged like one-tenth of what I had planned to and just like scaled it back. But it still wasn't enough. And by the second year, the dean of, or I'm sorry, the chair of the department had started a witch hunt on me and pulled out my third-year students and asked them if they knew whether Professor Tan had had any, any sexual relations with any other students. Of course, I, I had none. I was completely clean. Like I wasn't hiding anything. I was completely clean. And all the students were the ones who came to tell me, you know, do you know that she's doing this? And they thought that that was quite unjust and unfair. And so thankfully, um, none of them lied to her or something. But that really pissed me off. And I thought, man, I'm going to lose this job or I'll have to quit or I have to go against my values. 
and at that time I had had shrunk my dating coach practice so little that I, I couldn't survive on any income that would come from that. And um, that was a period where I was just like, not sure what was going to happen. And it turned out that that was really good. <laughs> and I'm very glad that I didn't stay in academia, especially the way it has gone the past few years and had already been going at that time. Um, but that now it's just accelerated the, the amount of bullshit coming out of the academy. And um, what had turned out to be this pressure and stress that I thought was going to be career, career ending. In fact, it was career ending, <laughs> but it was, a, it was a good career ender to begin another career. And when your backup plan, because at that time my backup plan was to grow the dating coach thing, and I just needed to buy my time or bide my time to, to get that happening. When your backup plan becomes more enticing than the thing you're doing now, that's when maybe you should really consider that. Now, it was, uh, just as a caveat, it was enticing to my wife. So <laughs> I'm still not as like bullish on the backup plan. It's still a backup plan, <laughs> but it's good to have one. And yeah. um, it's good to like, okay, there's that's part of reality. But um, let's try to get this to work. And I'll try my best to make this work. Yeah. But if it doesn't work out, I'm sure... If I just applied myself and stayed alive and stayed positive, that something would happen yeah. and the universe would make it work out. Yeah. And the Stoics used to talk about that, right? About how if you think about, like, think about the absolute worst case scenario of that thing that you've been so afraid of. And chances are it's not actually as bad as you think, right? When you actually go through it, you're like, okay, well, if that really happens, then what? And you're like, well, actually, it's like, oh, you know, I'll probably be okay. Mm. But no, I think that's, that's a really powerful point you're talking about, how, you know, it's not always about positive fusion and good things happening. Sometimes just bad things happen, period, mm -hmm. right? And especially when it's happening, it's very hard to see through to the other side. And I think that the only thing is called faith, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious man, to be perfectly honest. But I think that faith is, um, you know, Kierkegaard. Uh, was, a, was a great philosopher and he had this idea of what he called the night of faith mm. and he said he was talking about religious belief right specifically christian religious belief and he said that you know if you just believe in the in god with no doubts you are just in some sense delusional right <laughs> right you're, you're just okay well fine i'll just believe but it's not really you're just like okay you're just going along with it He's like the real knight of faith, right? In a sense, the true believer is someone who recognizes all the doubts and all the arguments against something and chooses to believe anyway, right? That's real belief, belief in the face of doubt. Mm. And I've always found that very powerful, mm. right? And maybe to come back to what you are talking about earlier, it's like, look, you need both reality and you need that ability to see through to the other side, right? That, that positive delusion, so to speak, and I guess the night of faith is someone who can say, look, I understand all the reasons why realistically, I mean, there's a good chance I'm going to die if I ride that bike across that bridge. But you know what? Like, notwithstanding that, I've decided to do it. And I've decided to believe that I can and focus on the other side and just get across, period. And I think usually when you operate that way, that's exactly when you perform the best, mm. when you will cross the bridge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so many times in my life where... I, if I focused on the things that could go badly, they go badly, mm -hmm. <laughs> like driving, for example. And there, um, I used to do that a lot. 
uh, as a child. Like one of the reasons I sucked at, oh, I'll give you a recent example. It's easy to pick on me when I was a kid, but um, I can make fun of myself as an adult. Uh, the first time I went scuba diving. So this came in like very uh, strongly that I had to focus on the very few things that I had to do, which weren't complicated, they weren't challenging. Like when, it, this here's the thing, if you have a challenge, it's easy. That's why achievers actually don't need to think about this that much because they're so focused on the task at hand, which hopefully is challenging. When it's not challenging is when gifted children, they start to get into trouble. And this is, I was just thinking about this in my dream the other night. I don't know. So I, I guess this is how it's related. <laughs> um, I, uh, in my, well, now we go back to my childhood. I'll give the recent example soon. Uh, I used to purposely sabotage myself on tasks. Um, here, here's an example. Um, I, I was the first chair, uh, all, like first chair saxophone lead in the, in the section, uh, first chair for salto. And uh, in jazz bands and, and in, uh, well, actually any saxophone section, concert band, whatever, the lead alto has the, high, has the dominant part. Mm -hmm. So you should be at least 20% louder than any other part. And sometimes they just mic you up so that they artificially boost you, but they don't, like, you shouldn't have to do that. So you should actually play louder and they should all play quieter when you're all playing. Mm -hmm. And so, the, so that's a very important part. That's carrying the melody. So anyway, I was first here, uh, first alto, and we were touring, and we, as we were like six, 16, I was 16 years old, maybe 15, we got to the hotel, and we had three hours before we had to play. So my buddy and I decided we'd go explore the town. So we're in our whole concert garb, dress pants, dress shoes, everything, and we end up running all over the town. We, in fact, we, then we looked at the time, and we're like, fuck, we can't make it back. We can't wait for the subway train. So we, we had taken like the subway. So... We got close enough that we were just one subway train away, and we looked down. And this was a streetcar, it's complicated, but it was a streetcar <laughs> tunnel, and it wasn't going to be another streetcar for like five or ten minutes. And we couldn't wait that long. So we decided we would jump down on the tracks and run. <laughs> so we literally ran a whole station. My buddy was a middle-distance athlete, so he was running really fast. Uh, and I was a sprinter, so I was out of breath. But anyway, we were running by. I saw rats go by me. Didn't have time to look at that. Just ran. And we jumped up on the next uh, platform, looked up. Our shoes were completely caked in mud. We had we were past our ankles in mud, like just nasty water, whatever. We get up there, and we're sweating, by the way, as well. And we just have enough time to get to the bathroom, get some paper towels, and wipe down our shoes. We get up there, and I... We're ready to play, like just like just in time. We we get up on stage. The conductor's like ding 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 on her stand. All right, I open my book. I have completely the wrong folder. It's none of the music we we're going to play that night, and it was like an eighteen-piece band. Um, I was carrying the melody on almost every every song, uh, and it was packed. It was some kind of benefit charity gala. They wanted to see the high school kids play. As you know, it's like fuck, and I just winged it. And it was pretty good because my adrenaline was going like, yeah, this is this is hard. I've never improvised an entire two-hour concert before. And I was looking at my my second chair alto's page, and I told her what was happening, like in between, like I don't have my music. And she's like, oh my god. So we tried to like share. She tried to shove her music over to me. So I was just trying to play like a third above her for most of it. And of course, I made mistakes. So the t the con conductor about the third song looked at me all weird, like, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like. <laughs> and um, anyway, I still remember that. But I loved it. Like, I felt guilty. I felt bad. But I thought, man, this is fun. Like, who else has ever done this? <laughs> and I, it, it's only like, what, 30 years later, I look back. And I'm like, that's my down. That Part of the thing that has limited me is that if I don't have a challenge, 
I will purposely screw things up so that it's challenging because only then is it fun. And if I had understood that about myself earlier, I would have, you know, not made so many screw ups. So one thing I know now is that even though I'm not optimally a multitasker, so if, if it's an important task, I need to focus on that one thing only and block out everything else. But most of what I do to me intellectually isn't that challenging. So I would just not do it. Like bookkeeping, for instance, that only I can access certain accounts. I would just drag my feet. Um, there's so many other examples. Writing, that was very easy. Perfunctory email responses, things like this. So I, if I could hire it out, I would do it. But there are some things that only I can do because of security reasons. I end up just opening three different windows. I'll listen to a podcast. I'll throw some music on if necessary. But just to like keep my brain occupied because otherwise I won't do it or I'll mess it up just so that I can fix it later and that will be hard. And um, the, so the vantage point of trust is, is sort of related to this in the sense of like recently um, I, uh, I was trying to think of the, so recently I messed up and um, what was, oh, right. So, well, actually, let's just talk about the vantage point of trust and I'll come back to the recent example because now it's, I want to bring it back to that. So the, the idea of the tapestry as being the fact that there is no stain on it. And at the moment you think there's a stain. But if you have the bigger vantage point and you continue to paint this or to, I guess you're not painting a tapestry, you're, you're weaving a tapestry. And at the end of the day, like what is the most valuable in the piece of art are those little imperfections because the little imperfections are the ones that copiers can't reproduce so easily or that, that makes it special, makes it different, makes it unique. Um, like the example of the cracked vase um, or the example of the teacups that, you know, these ancient teacups from Asia that um, sometimes people buy and wash, right? And they think that the the green stains yeah. in the teacup are imperfections. But the, that's why they're so valuable, because they haven't been washed. The same with the Stradivarius uh, violins. It's all of the grooves and the imperfections. That's what makes it um, attractive. And in some ways, it's, it's the same with people. So if you think about, like, if you have a scar in your face or some asymmetry in your face... Technically speaking, you should be less attractive. But the studies have shown that if you have a perfectly symmetrical face or the closer it gets to symmetry, the more forgettable it is. And one way to create a symmetrical face is to amalgamate a thousand faces, just combine them all, right? And you get this one artificial face on, in, the, in the computer. And that's a face that people will have a hard time recognizing or like remembering. Like if you committed a crime and, you know, had, some, had to tell it to the, to the police, you won't be able to describe it very easily. But if you had a distinctive scar or your face was, you know, you had a tooth out of place or your nose was crooked or whatever, people will remember that. And in fact, <laughs> not in a bad way, but that in a way that it stands out. And it's just that one little imperfection. So obviously, if your whole face is scarred, this is going to really affect your attractiveness. <laughs> but if you have otherwise um, a pretty face, but you have one or two or three or more, uh, but not too many imperfections, that's what makes you unique. That's a distinctive thing. And your life, in your life, you don't know what those will be as they're happening. But those are the things that actually make life most valuable. Yeah. No, absolutely. And... I mean, in a sense, those are the things that can't be replicated, right? And I think in a world where everything is getting flatter and flatter, and in a sense, right, competition is increasing, you see so many people sort of chasing the same singular point or the same singular goal. And I think that in so many dimensions of life, it is only those unique things, right? Those imperfections that make you different, right? Um, 
if you're playing music, it is your unique quirks in a sense, right? The deviations from perfect that make your sound so unique. Otherwise, I can just get a computer to play it. Exactly. And yeah. I think that'll be true of so many things where, well, the like to be human is to err, right? In a very real sense. And perhaps that is your only competitive advantage to find whatever is unique about yourself and what and yourself is an amalgamation of all these failures, if you will, or mistakes that you've made in the past and figuring it out how best to leverage that, that unique, weird mix bundle of failure and mistakes mm-hmm. that has made you and has made you the only person that you could be. And I guess maybe to close just one this is a quote from The Matrix, actually, which is a fantastic movie. And I, and I think everything you need to learn about philosophy, you can learn from The Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my philosophy tutors at Oxford did not, were not amused by that <laughs> comment. But um, I, and, and, you know, there's a scene where um, um, Neo, I think, is meeting with the Oracle. And she basically says that, you know, he's come and, he, right, and he's come to ask her, you know, like, tell me what I should do effectively and she says no you've already made the choice right the key now is to understand why you made that choice but also um you know she had this line where she says like know that like what happens happens for a reason and couldn't have happened any other way and i was like hmm, that is very interesting hmm. <laughs> yes Sort of like reminds me of the ending of Infinity War Part One, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. which was a great cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Sell to part Two. <laughs> Let's not talk about that because I'll go down that rabbit hole forever. Um, the one trick about all of this is that, uh, like, although though, is that you can't force it. So a great example from the one that you brought up, yeah. which was a great example, is the classical musicians. And even jazz musicians now yeah. are not so not even being replicated yet by AI, but that they all sound the same. So Malcolm Gladwell's written about this: how you could go into any any major city and just hire out yeah. um, a, an orchestra, mm-hmm. and they're basically interchangeable. Like that's the idea of classical music: it's supposed to all sound faithful <laughs> to the original. Now there are those who have a flair, a personality; they dress differently. They you know so, but there's and. When they play the solo, they deviate or they put this emotion into it that um, leaps off the page. It's different from just reading it off the page. But they're the backup orchestra, so to speak, is yeah. supposed to not deviate from the page. So they're not supposed to go out and break out into some improvised solo. They're supposed to play what's on the damn page, right? And then the soloist can can put some flair into it. But if you're just like the second trumpet, um, you're supposedly interchangeable with any other second trumpet in any other major orchestra anywhere in the world. And that actually makes you uh, dispensable. Yeah. And this is actually happening in jazz, the one uh, music form mm. of, I guess it's now classical, um, that it shouldn't happen to because there's so much based on improvisation. But because there, there are academies of jazz, conservatories teach mm. jazz, there's a sound that the average teacher wants you to sound like. And you're all looking back to certain figures, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, Miles at various stages, and you're all trying to sound like him, that it's really easy to just sound like a good jazz player. And there are thousands of good jazz, tenor saxophonists, Mm -hmm. just even that, that it's hard to to tell your distinctive sound. And the ones who have some weirdness, so I remember there's a guy named Joe Lovano, who's a great tenor saxophonist. And um, I used to be really, really into jazz. 
this was like 10 years ago, I'd just geek, I'd buy every copy of Downbeat magazine. I'd read, I'd listen to everything. Um, so now I'm a little bit less informed, but even now I still see Joe Lovato pop up and uh, he used to play a full wood kit. So that would be like, he'd have the saxophone. In fact, I think he might've had a wooden saxophone, but he had, normally he plays his own, like um, a good Selmer sax, but he has um, a wooden mouthpiece, which is unusual. Um, wooden, like, so a wooden reed, um, like, it's a very wood sound. So you hear like a lot of rasp or more of a raspiness. Uh, Lester Young played with his own tone. And these were all results of idiosyncrasies. And you can go out and try to develop this. I think, in fact, that many charismatic people have a studied persona, mm. right? They purposely carved out a way of speaking, a way of moving, like they're actors. Mm. And um, this is a very high level skill because otherwise you just come off as fake. And you need to practice it. It's a studied thing. And especially if you're an actor, I'm sure all of them are doing that. If you look at The Rock in his interviews in the 90s when he was WWE yeah. early rock, and then, <laughs> and then what he's like now is totally different. Um, same even with Jordan Peterson to a certain extent. I've seen his old videos where he's very relaxed, very jo jovial, mm. um, jocular in a way. And now he's much more stern. He's a lot thinner. He's, he's dressed a, a lot more GQ. And um, he's got, it seems like, a more studied persona. That's not a bad thing. I mean, especially if it's consistent with who you are. It's just a part of you that you bring out. Just like when somebody learns how to pick up chicks, so to speak, he would probably, if for him to learn that, he probably wasn't good at it before. And therefore, he has to have a different way of, of presenting himself. And that's just a part of him. As long as he knows that that's a different part, that that's not all he is, and his whole identity is wrapped up in that, it's perfectly fine. Um, but... Um, the this idea of trying to go out to create the the failure in order to get the good like yeah. the, the the thing that will come out of it is actually so sort of sort of paradoxical right because then it wouldn't be a failure <laughs> so all of this having been said like the vantage point of trust is you give it your all with looking at all of reality that you have access to and keeping that like basically doing what you ought to be doing anyway yeah but if it doesn't go well, if you gave it your all and you failed, uh, don't freak out too much and don't kill yourself. Yeah. Because often the best things around the corner. Yeah. And uh, there's a great book called Think and Grow Rich. I don't know how yeah. you feel about it. Um, I used to love it. Now I'm sort of uh, some of it's really good. But and part one part that's really good is he had a phrase three feet from gold. I think it was mm -hmm. three. It might be six. Yeah. And the idea was just like somebody bought a mine for millions of dollars and thought there was gold in it, and he mined it, mined it, mined it, and he couldn't find any gold. Then he sold it off. Then the next guy who bought it did some more research and discovered that it was like three feet from where they had dug. <laughs> yeah. And there was a ton of gold. And you, So part of the lesson there is, for personal application, when you think it's the hardest, when it's the darkest time, is actually just when the light is coming, like when the sun's about to rise, right? Like, yeah. So that dark period, keep going. Yeah. And um, you might think that that's it, game over. You got to press. You got to put more coins in the in the game, or you're done. Actually, just keep. Don't put the coin in yet. Don't press any button yet. Just keep going, mm -hmm. and um, something good was probably coming around the corner. Yeah. It's when people just give up, right? And then they, because of their despair, they do other things, self-destructive things, yeah. that that then you know spirals them down into hell. Yeah. But if you're ahead in hell, just keep going. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Don't stop in hell. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, this is quote I've always liked, and it, I think it says. Um, be patient. Uh, the universe is running right on schedule. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. It's hard to do, though. I mean, like, obviously, this it could sound very new agey, like, oh, trust the universe. That's why I really don't like the verbiage of, and I've already dropped it a couple of times, <laughs> saying the universe has some yeah. agency. But um, so trying to think about it, what it's like from the inside going through things. But it's also like just looking at it from the outside. If you just keep trying mm. and you just keep grinding and maybe this the way the path you're going down isn't going to work out try another path and yeah. just keep trying and um i'll give you some personal examples so maybe it'll come home yeah. like make it more concrete um every so this is probably this is one that most most people can relate to your first breakup well the first time you got dumped because <laughs> you might have been the dumper so the first time you got dumped and if it was your first relationship that's doubly hard and it's just sort of like, oh, my life is over. I, love does not exist. And you go through that 500 days of summer kind of depression. And if, as you get older and wiser, you realize that that's really, that was, that was a really short-sighted way to feel, like interpretation of, of the events. Um, and, and so here's some more. I guess I'm a, I'm a lover of sorts. <laughs> uh, all of the examples I just immediately thought of were all relationship stuff. But the most recent, like, I went through a divorce. If I didn't get through that dark period, I wouldn't have found my calling as a dating coach. I wouldn't have found in that. Because if I didn't go through that, I wouldn't have figured out what I'm doing now as a life coach. And, and I, wouldn't have met, I wouldn't have met you, Henry. I wouldn't have met <laughs> so many other people yeah. that were so instrumental in my life. And um, if I hadn't been cheated on as the final straw to dump this narcissistic vampire uh, ex-girlfriend that I had then, um, I wouldn't have met my wife now. Yeah. And if I had just like fucked it all and I'm just going to go fuck around, um, I wouldn't have met my wife now. So yeah. there's so many things where you look back at like this, you don't see how you can connect the dots. Yeah. Uh, you don't see where the dots would go. <laughs> yeah. um, but looking back, you can see how the that stain in the tapestry yeah. actually perfects this, the tapestry. Yeah. And it's not just about again, like success or failure. It's about things needed to happen at just the right time in just the right way for all of oh, the yeah. things to come together yeah. the way it is. So, right? yeah, like, because like I'm tempted now to purposely create failure so I can get the benefit. Like that would be like getting a tapestry and then purposely trying to do imperfections. Yeah. And um, maybe, but like I said, I think, you know, everything has a rhythm, right? And, you know, you talk about the universe or nature or whatever you call it, you know, nature has a rhythm. Right, plants grow at just the right time. Right, not too fast, not too slow. Mm. And I absolutely believe in you know personal agency, very much so. But you know, Miyamoto Musashi um, was perhaps the greatest swordsman to have ever lived. He was this Japanese, you know, uh, wandering Ronin. Right, so sort of samurai but a master. Um, fought, I don't know, dozens and dozens of duels, killed dozens and dozens of people. Um, definitely among the sort of the supreme tacticians and thinkers about warfare that ever lived and wrote a, a famous book called, um, uh, the, you know, The Way of the Five Rings. And he talks a lot about rhythm and timing in that book. And he says, it's not always just about being faster. It's about being at the right time, right? And he's like, the master of strategy is neither too fast nor too slow. The whole point, because you say too, right? It mm. is just the right time. Mm. He seems unhurried, almost, right? The, the old image of the Zen master, right? And like sort of um, the unhurried master who knows exactly what to do, exactly when, right? That's that's sort of the image you have as opposed to sort of the guy just sort of, you know, Alan Watts' example of tr just trying to sort of pour at the water and sinking, right? The sort of effortless floating. Um, 
you know, the the, the ancient Chinese philosophers, uh, they had this concept of like bushi ding, right? And mm. about the blade that just flows through a cow almost mm. without hitting bone or sinew, without hitting resistance, because you know just where to go and just how to cut at just the right time. And I've always thought that that's a really appealing view of how you should lead life, right? Sort of the ability to flow through life and around obstacles as they come. And not just, you know, the, the image of, again, the guy just sort of rapidly paddling in water and not getting anywhere, mm. right? The, the master, the guy who can swim is the guy who knows exactly what to do, is calm and relaxed and can flow through the water at just the right time, just the yeah. right way. Yeah. The, the hard part for us in, is like in time is to know what the right timing is. Yeah. And we try to force the timing because we think that there is, we, we think that we know what the right timing yeah. is. And we might be right, uh, but we might be wrong. <laughs> and you won't know until you look back. But, be, but one thing you just do is if you've lived long enough, you can look back and see that the timing was all right. It was all correct. Yeah. And um, even if it was bad, maybe you just haven't lived long enough to be able to look back and see how that yeah. might work out. Yeah. And even if it doesn't, or even if you don't get to live long enough to see how it works out, it's actually better for you to assume that it's work, going to work out yeah. and then continue living doing what you would do under that assumption. So yeah. it's a positive delusion if you yeah. hold it, because um, it will empower you to do whatever it is that you need to do next. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Well, speaking of right timing in yeah. the universe. Very good. <laughs> so thanks for putting up with our technical difficulties there. And I uh, hope it wasn't too uh, bothersome at the beginning. And yep. uh, another great discussion. Thank you, Henry. Glad we could actually do this live in person. Yes, as much as, as flows. But much we better. still have technical difficulties. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the vantage point of trust. So uh, yeah, you, so you can hear uh, or find out more about me at davidtmphd.com. Yep. Um, and we'll have the show notes for wherever you're listening to this. And how do they get a hold of you, Henry? You can find me on my website at henrychong.com. So easy yes. enough. You've got a, a newsletter. That's yes, and you can find that on my website too. So. Yes. All right. And we have a private Facebook group for the DT PhD podcast yep. group. You can find the link in the show notes and I hope to see you there. And until next time, Captain yep. and Henry Chung signing out. Hey, it's David again. Before you go, a couple last things. First, all the show notes and links to resources can be found at davidtnphd.com backslash podcast. Or you can just go to davidtmphd.com and find it through the top navigation menu. Second, if you'd like to interact with me or other like-minded fans of the podcast, then join our private DTPHD podcast Facebook group. We've got an awesome community of intelligent, wise individuals from literally all around the world. You can send a join request to the group using the link you'll find in the show notes of every podcast at davidtmphd.com backslash podcast. Click the link, log into your Facebook, and then click to join. We approve join requests every day. So go to davidtmphd.com and click the link to join. See you inside our group.